This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Well, good morning, everybody. It's Tuesday, and I am Glenda Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I am Christy Landwehr from Lexington, Kentucky today, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for this Tuesday, May 21st, 2019, episode 2186. This episode is brought to you by the Certified Horsemanship Association. Good morning, horse world. And Houston, we have a problem. Wrong button. Sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Coming up on today's show, Jenny Beveridge from Troxel is going to join us one more time with another installment of Things You Need to Know About Helmets. And then Terry Williams and Teddy Frank are going to weigh in on some common training challenges like hollow-backed horses and chronic spookers and equines with canter issues. So stay tuned for the fray, folks. Houston, we have a problem. Ability equals skill plus knowledge. I got a bad feeling about this. Here's a safety tip for you from the Certified Horsemanship Association. Missed it by that much. How can I change this to make it better the next time? Time for Training Tuesday on Horses in the Morning with the Certified Horsemanship Association. Well, thank you for joining us, everybody. We keep changing. We've been experimenting with when the producer comes in and gives us what's coming up on today's show. And I think we've changed it 85 times now to the point where I can't even remember what we finally decided on. So thank you, Jennifer, for correcting me this morning. Well, Christy, last night, by the way, Christy is here. Uh, as we said, she is here the third Tuesday of every month. The CHA has been doing this segment for about 85 years now, and um, we're all very old. So uh, <laughs> you can go back and listen to all the past episodes. Just go to horseinthemorning.com, scroll down to the middle of the page, you'll see the CHA logo. Click on that, and it'll bring up all the past Training Tuesday episodes. So Christy tech, or emails me last night about 10 o'clock, says, I'm waiting for a flight. I don't know if I'm going to get it or not. If I don't get it, we're going to have a best of tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And that's what I, and then this morning I woke up to another email that came in at what, three in the morning saying, I'll be there. So a little <laughs> tired today, Christy? Oh, yes. So, you know, um, Denver, we have this old saying that, you know, by Mother's Day, you should plant your flowers. Well, yeah, not this year. I think we need to wait till July 4th. So we get to Denver International Airport, or I do, and get on my 5.45 p.m. flight that's supposed to get into Louisville at about 10.30. Okay, so I thought that's fine. Drive an hour to Lexington, be in bed by 11.30 midnight, you know, sleep for eight hours, come in, do the show. Everything's cool, right? This is going to be okay. So first of all, it's delayed a half an hour because of a windshield wiper. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Okay, so windshield wiper on the plane. So we get that fixed. Then we get in the plane. Did they and go to Pep Boys and say, I need one for this model plane? And Yes, know. I'd like to know. Or Napa. <laughs> to drive or, yeah, back. what do they yeah. do exactly, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
So then we go and we get on the actual airplane and then the um, I actually get front row. I'm like A26 oh, wow. and I get front row. So I'm like right in the front listening to everything. So pretty soon the captain comes out because <laughs> I'm on Southwest. It's never good when comes, the captain comes out. <laughs> uh, uh, and he starts talking to the flight attendants and he goes, the airplane won't start. <laughs> Jeez. Alrighty then. So they call the mechanic guy, and of course they're not getting on the mic and telling anybody anything, but us front row ladies could hear. And basically, the flight attendant said, it's like when you had one of those old cars that's a stick yeah. shift, and you would have to have somebody push it downhill while somebody else put the clutch in. Yeah, yep. That's what was happening. Jennifer so had a car this... for years. We had to always park it on a hill. So you know. Yep. <laughs> So I guess there's no hills where we were in Denver. So they didn't do it that way. They went ahead and brought out this big air compressor machine. And they took this air compressor machine and jump-started our airplane. So now we're all <laughs> looking at each other like, should we be flying on this thing? I don't know about this. <laughs> I've never so heard of jump-starting an airplane. falling. <laughs> oh, no. You're so getting much snow, snow already? Oh, my gosh. So much snow. And we're all looking out the window going, oh, my gosh. It is coming down so hard. It's like a whiteout. How long like, have you been oh, on the plane at this point, then. by the way? Oh, we've been on the plane about an hour and a half at this point, just okay. at the gate. Okay. We're just at the gate. So then we finally back up because they jumpstart the airplane and they take us out to the tarmac. Well, now they have to de-ice us, okay? Yeah. So here comes the de-icing machine, and that's all fine. I have two ladies next to me from the south, and they've never seen de-icing. So they're, like, on top of me because I always get the window <laughs> seat, taking the photos, and they're so excited about the de-icing machine, and they're doing all this. So we get de-iced. So we take off when we were supposed to land. Okay. Oh what, 10.30? So, Your uh -huh, time? Denver time? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, no. 10.30 this time. Oh, okay. So I was supposed to land at 10.30 Eastern time, so we take off at 8.30 Mountain. Okay, so we fly. It's pretty bumpy, but, you know, that's no big deal. Welcome to landing in and out of Denver. That's no big deal. So we land, and we get to the gate, and I have to run down to my rental car place because they're going to close, but they still have my little rental car. So I get in my little rental car, and I start driving, and I realize it does not have automatic headlights. Okay. So I'm on the highway and the headlights are not on. I'm like, okay, this isn't good. So I pull over to the median on the highway. I get my headlights going. I'm like, okay, this is still good. So now I'm on my headlights. By the I'm way, going. isn't that every rental car you get, you'll always forget to check where stuff is before you drive out of the parking lot. Oh, it's horrible because you have to make the assumption <laughs> know, it's, it's going to work place. the way yours does. Yeah, oh, it's exactly. so bad. I do it every time and I'm like, oh, where are the headlights are? Where's the, oh, yeah, where are the windshield wipers? That's the other thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. But at least it wasn't raining here. It was lovely here in Louisville when I landed and drove to Lexington. So I come my hour. That drive is uneventful. I get up to the hotel, and they're having some big event, some big all-tech event with people from all over the world are here. Oh, it's Meanwhile, their annual conference. <laughs> a big conference. It's 2 in the morning. Okay, 2 in the morning. So I get to the Hilton, and I go walking up, and they go, oh, we assumed you weren't going to make it. We got rid of your room. What? I you said, had a okay, reservation well, with a credit card, right? Oh, and I prepaid. I did the oh, internet what? when you prepay thing. Uh-huh. So Ooh. I looked at them and I said, well, that's funny because I prepaid and I need some place to sleep. They go, okay, we're going to give you the parlor. Okay. So I go cruising up to the, the parlor, parlor and I should have known, Glenn. Yes. You were in the hallway? The you had a bed in the hallway? <laughs> Seriously, guess what the number of the room was? 313. Oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, I should have known. So I open up room 313, and it's like one of those in-between suite rooms where the bar and the bathroom, and there is a couch, and in the couch is a pull-out bed. So you prepaid for a room, which they uh -huh. gave away and should have they should have left it empty all night because you paid for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then you get a pull-out bed? 
Uh huh. Mm. With one pair of sheets and one comforter. So I put on the and two. And you had to make your own bed. Room. It was what now? You had to make your own bed. Oh, I make my own bed. And oh yeah, <laughs> At the, three I didn't even the know there was a bed until I figured out there was a pullout couch. <laughs> What a nightmare. So I pull out my couch. That's bad at nine o'clock at night, let alone three in the morning. Oh my gosh. I put on the two robes because I'm so cold. I put on the two robes. I get entered. There was no blankets, no nothing. I put the heat on in the room and I get into my thing and it sinks in the middle and my butt touches the floor. It's not serious. It's By this fun. point in time, I've almost and, and for those that don't know, Christy is my tallest host. Um, <laughs> all the rest of them would have been fine because they're all like five foot two. But uh, Christy and I look at the eye to eye to each other. So. <laughs> And my feet are hanging off the end of the bed, by the way. So anyway, so that's how I have to sleep all night long. Of course, did I sleep much? Yeah, no, not no. really. You sound really. great, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> it's because this is a morning show. If this was an afternoon show, we'd be in trouble. Yeah, you don't have a talk this afternoon, do you? Because you're in trouble. No, I don't uh, talk till tomorrow. Good. Oh, good. Because I see a nap. Wait a minute. If you're napping, are they going to give you a real room? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'd get a refund for that baby, by the way. Oh, I've got to do something. So anyways, I came down this morning and I thought I'm not going to mess with it now. I left my luggage and they said, oh, by the time you come back tonight, we'll have you in a room. People are checking out. I said, okay, that's great. (laughs) I've not heard of them giving away a room that's been prepaid. When it rains, it pours. It was just one thing after another to the point where you just have to giggle. And the whole time I kept positive, the glass was half full. And do you know why, Glenn? Because I go, I have a great story for horses in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's this true. is great. <laughs> Jennifer would not have been that positive at two in the morning. I can tell you that. No. I was very positive. I didn't yell at anybody. You would have been very proud of me. <laughs> You're not a yelling type anyway. I'm not. I'm not. It was it was pretty entertaining. But yeah, I, I, there was a couple of um, words that I don't like my children to say that came out of my mouth by myself in my room. And this morning, As when you're I making got to your bed at three scary. in the morning. <laughs> yes. God, what a nightmare. I've you know, I can't tell you the last time I've slept on a couch bed and they well, were they're never comfortable. But it sounds painful. like yours was exceptionally not comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Did it have a bathroom in your little room, in your it parlor? Did. The bathroom was really lovely, oh, actually, okay. in my parlor, yes. And I had a gigantic <laughs> dining room table that probably could have sat a board of 12. So is room. this part of a suite that they just closed off? Correct. Ah. And the Alltech Conference, they get thousands of people in from all over the place. Thousands. Oh, they sold out the hotels. I mean, I get that. But to make the assumption I wasn't coming and give my room away, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> So what? Uh, why are you in Lexington? This is so exciting. So we are going to be um, part of the Right Horse Initiative. I think we've talked about that, where they are trying to find um, homes for rehomed horses. And, of course, nothing works better for us than a uh, beginner school horse that's a little older, as long as they're, they've been well-trained in the past and they're pretty steady eddies, right? So we're part of that. And they're having their inaugural, their very first Right Horse Summit in Lexington at the lovely hotel where I'm staying at, whose name will be not used in vain right now because it might not be good what I say. What anyway, the hell do you mean? Um, and it's going to be a lovely <laughs> event for those that still want to come because I'm sure you won't sleep in the parlor. You'll be fine. So we're excited to be here. Are you? Is the All Tech Conference going on at your place? At your hotel? Yes, but they're leaving today, and oh. we're coming in. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. And you are at the Hilton, right? 
thanks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll throw him under the bus with that. So, um, so what, what's going, what's the goal of the summit? So the goal of the summit, we're on a, there's going to be a bunch of different panels. I'm sitting on one of the panels and we're basically going to be talking about all the different rehoming centers, also called rescues. We're trying to kind of change the name in the industry. You know, rescue's gotten an interesting connotation over the years. So they're trying to change the name rescue more into like rehoming, retraining, readoption centers, right? To give these horses second, thirds, and fourths careers. So they're doing that and it's going to be a lot of those folks that run those operations coming to learn how to run them more effectively, um, how to go ahead and get these horses placed more expediently, but also with good training and those types of things so that they don't come back, so that they last with their new owner all I'm, the way till the end. It's interesting. That's interesting. I wonder how, do you know what the response has been? How many people are going to be there? You know, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, I'll know for sure, you know, here in a couple days. So, no, I don't know yet, but I do know that um, it's been pretty well received. You know, Good. they don't have an umbrella association for the equine rehoming and rescues. Um, and I think the right horse is trying to be that for the industry. Well, it needs one um, because we all know the, of the problem rescues. We read about them all the time, right? So, um, you know, it, it needs one and it needs some guidance, I think. And uh, good for them for trying to do that. Well, and we're excited because tonight we're going to be over at New Vocations for those that are in Lexington. Talk about one um, that does it right. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to have our reception there tonight as a start for the whole summit. So well, we're excited to go there. We were we went over for their barbecue during uh, Land Rover. And, of course, they are, they're a media partner of ours for the Retired Racehorse Radio Show. And uh, we went over there. It's a beautiful facility. Their new facility there in Lexington is beautiful. I don't know. You probably haven't been to the new one. It's really nice. I haven't. This yeah. will be my first time. It's yeah. really nice. And they know how to put on a party. So so you're going to be fine. Yay. Uh, see, I'll get my second wind. It'll be okay. And you'll be bringing home a thoroughbred. So there is that. So. <laughs> There's probably that, yes. <laughs> Are they going to do a horse demonstration while you're there? I believe you know? so, yes. Yeah, and they they're going to have do. appetizers and we're going to do a tour of the facility and it's, all of that. It's neat. It's it's uh, much bigger and nicer than their last one there in Lexington. You're going to like I'm it. Excited. Wonderful. Uh, well, that's good. I'm glad you're doing that, and I'm glad that that's coming together. I think it, it's much needed. I think it was uh, something that we've talked about over the years here on the show. We've, wa we want to highlight rescues, but we have to be very careful because yes. there's a difference between a rescue and a collector, and it's hard for us for, on the outside to tell which is which. That's um, true. And what's good about this, we're going to be talking about things like site accreditation through us, through certified horsemanship. There's also other entities that um, basically site accredit sanctuaries for any type of animal that there are also going to be there to talk about what that looks like. So it should be really educational for everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, good. Good. I'm glad they're doing that. Who was the one that start who started that, by the way? Um, the Watershed Foundation is the background, and um, so the Right Horse Summit kind of and the Right Horse Initiative came from the Watershed Group, which is the funding agent, this family that really was wanting to do something in this space. And so they've they've been doing just a great job. And so Christy Counts was the first person that contacted me, and now Christy Schulte also works yep, for them. Yep. And those are the two ladies I deal with the most. And we both dealt with Christy Schulte over the years in many capacities, actually. That's right. All right, let's uh, go to Jenny is ready. Well, we are so excited to have Jenny Beveridge from Troxel back on the show today. Um, she grew up in the saddle and found her why in life after seeing the spot where, unfortunately, a family acquaintance died from a head injury while riding her horse to the trailhead. 
So that kind of speared her on to be involved now with Troxel Helmets for over 15 years, developing helmets that riders want to wear and is currently their brand manager. Troxel has over 4 million equestrian helmets in the market and is the only physician-developed helmet line and the first to create a lightweight and well-ventilated certified equestrian helmet. We are very excited as this is the year that Troxel has come on board as an official partner with CHA. So welcome, Jenny. Excited to have you back on the show. Thanks, Christy. Appreciate it. So last time we chatted, you were dealing with a lot of your cattle. So tell me, is, are all yes. the babies on the ground? What's going on? They are. They are. They're happy, happily grazing now. So it's all good here in Eastern Oregon. Got lots that of happy babies. Almost, wonderful. So. Yeah. Anybody in Denver yesterday yeah. that had a foal or a calf still had to deal with snow, but hopefully that'll be over soon in our oh. neck of the woods too. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I told my husband, I go, all right, husband, did you put the like plastic bags on every single plant so that all my plants that I planted this weekend don't die? He's like, no. So I'm going to go home to a bunch of dead plants. Oh, geez, that is no good. Oh, it is. What it <laughs> is. Well, maybe the snow will act as insulation yeah. and you'll be fine. Thanks, Glenn. You're again being You're glass half full. I like that. <laughs> I doubt it, but it, we can think it anyway. Optimism at its <laughs> finest. Good. (laughs) So Jenny, go ahead and let's dive right in here. Um, You know, we've talked about all kinds of things in the past. And for anyone listening, you can go back on the um, previous two shows and hear more about Helmet Fit. You can also go on our website, caja.horse, and see a wonderful demonstration of Helmet Fit with a Troxel helmet, I might add, and how to do that safely Mm -hmm. and effectively. Um, But let's go ahead and jump in today on today's topic. Jenny, tell us, what is the chemistry of a helmet exactly? Sure. Well, a lot of times, you know, when I go to different um, events and I'm talking to to riders, um, they kind of just want to know, you know, kind of how we start in developing a helmet. And so I just kind of figured I would just touch on kind of the five points that we kind of talk about as a team um, with our engineer. You know, I work from more of the aesthetic appearance side of the helmet. We have a fabulous engineer that's been in the industry. He actually came from the bike helmet industry and the car seat industry. Um, been developing and was the first one to come up with Dr. Tim's, which was the physician that started Troxel Helmet. Um, the two of them came up with the um, the first certified equestrian helmet that was lightweight and well ventilated. And so um, his name is Jorge Garcia, and that's our, our lead engineer. And so he's on our team, and he specializes in the actual um, how to make uh, the helmet work properly, uh, what materials we use and such. So I work very closely with him. And then we have another, um, gentleman, uh, that actually lives in Germany and he's been on our team for about 12 years and he works um, very closely with Jorge and myself. And the three of us really are kind of the three that, that work through the visualization, um, the sketching, um, the initial, um, drawings of what we're going to come up with for a helmet. So, Basically, when we're doing that, we look at the chemistry of the helmet. So first of all, we looked at, um, you know, how is that helmet going to protect the head and the brain as well as possible? So that's our number one priority when we're developing a helmet is, you know, protecting the rider. Um, Second, we have to take into account is the appearance of the helmet and is that going to be acceptable in the market? So that's kind of where I come in as a rider. I say, okay, we need, you know, bigger vents or more vents or, you know, you know, we, you know, talk about the pain points that riders have. Um, Next, um, we talk about the comfort and the heat exchange. Obviously, you know, that has to do with the aesthetic appearance as well. Um, And then, you know, we have to go back into the engineering side, which is, 
you know, how it, are the materials that we're potentially going to use um, going to react um, to temperatures and moisture extremes and heat extremes? You know, as we're developing helmets, we always have to take into account that, you know, somebody in Canada, Canada can be riding in, you know, negative 10 degrees weather. And then, you know, somebody in Texas is riding in 110 degree weather. So, you know, those materials that we, we decide upon um, for the helmets have to be, um, they don't, they have to not get brittle or they have to not melt and such. So we have to take that into account. Um, and then next, you know, we have to also look at, you know, the retention system. So those are the straps that go um, and keep the helmet on the head. So we have to make sure those are flexible and that the buckles um, are um, compliant as well. So we kind of take into account several things as we start the process of developing a new helmet. So that's kind of the, the overall kind of snapshot of, you know, how we start the process of, of, um, of designing a new helmet and the chemistry involved in that. There is so much to it. So how then, there Jenny, is. does the helmet actually work? Sure. So um, it is interesting. So, you know, we get a lot of um, riders sending back helmets because Troxel has a two-year accident replacement program. So with that, you know, most of the time we ask riders to send back helmets. And um, it's very interesting because, you know, some riders are worried when they send back their helmet and say, oh, my helmet has a crack or, oh, the shell came off it. Or, um, I, you know, I see, you know, a dent in the foam. And, and um, that's the way the helmet is supposed to work, actually. So if you see that, um, if you have a wreck and you had, you know, an impact with your head and you see, you know, some damage to the helmet, like where it's actually cracked, that's actually not a bad thing. So basically. Um, and in that shell, um, the way a helmet works is um, when you fall, a certified helmet absorbs energy by crushing and extending your head stopping time to reduce the peak impact on the brain significantly. So um, the helmet is actually built to compress and fracture upon a serious impact. So uh, a broken helmet is not a sign of a faulty one. In fact, it may crush or crack as it absorbs the energy that could otherwise cause you serious injury. So um, the EPS liner. So the shell of, of the helmet is usually some type of type of a plastic. Sometimes it's covered in the leather or suede or such, but basically there's an outer shell and then there's an inner liner, which is an EPS foam, which is um, um, an acronym for expanded polystyrene. So the foam on the inner shell is very, um, very much like the foam that you would see in your cooler, um, like for your drinks. So it acts as an insulator um, and it's a great absorber of energy. Um, and basically, that EPS liner gives up its structure um, to the force of an impact, and then that prolongs the burst of energy that occurs. And so basically, it kind of slows down your brain from hitting um, your, uh, your head, basically, your, your skull. So that, that EPS liner really absorbs a lot of that energy, slows that, that transfer of energy down, and basically, um, this slows how quickly, you know, your brain's heading your head. So it's quite amazing how, um, how it works and really gives up its structure to absorb the energies. But that's how, um, that's how the helmet works. Well, and thank goodness, because we needed to do that because our brain is, yeah, definitely one of our most important internal organs we need to keep it, it solvent. Is. So I love this question yeah. because I think there's an assumption here, um, which riders are at risk for head injuries the most. And I think the assumption is jumping and the assumption is, mm -hmm. you know, speed events, things like that. Um, so what is your take on that question? 
So really, you know, when we looked at different studies, there's unfortunately, you know, in our healthcare system, we don't have a great way right now of organizing a lot of statistics that come, you know, there's different regional areas that do a better job or different, um, you know, hospital systems that might um, ask uh, more um, uh, detailed questions when a writer comes in. But basically, right now with the information that we have to work off of just from the medical side of, you know, when people come in for injuries, um, you know, it's really, it comes down to the cumulative amount of time you ride um, at, uh, that puts you at a higher risk more so than what event you are doing. So obviously jockeys, you know, that's a little bit of a different, so I'll probably just kind of take them off. I'm just talking about more like regular riding, um, not these higher risk riding, but basically it comes down to, you know, cumulative riding hours. So it's very interesting. The more hours you ride, the higher your risk is of receiving a head injury, um, you know, it goes up cumulatively. And actually, riding horses has the same amount of injury accidents per riding hour as as riding a motorcycle, which is kind of crazy if you think about that. You know, um, you know, you, you, I guess, you know, we see motorcycle riders, you know, we, we hear of their accidents because they're on public roads and such, you know, with the horses, you know, a, you know, a lot of the injuries happen, you know, on private property or, you know, on um, public lands and such, but they're not necessarily... Um, you know, in a big, you know, big um, public arena. And so um, you don't really think about the fact that, oh, wow, you know, riding my horse potentially is the same, um, you know, accident rate of head injuries as riding a motorcycle. So um, when we kind of figured that out, it was kind of eye-opening. Um, and just, it made you realize too, that, you know, it doesn't matter um, also how skilled of a rider you are, because, you know, things happen, horses trip, they go down, um, there's just so many freak things. And, you know, some of those things happen on the ground. About 20% of head injuries with horses happen um, on the ground as compared to riding. Um, you know, there are definitely things you can do. You can, there are proper ways you can learn how to fall, but that's not always going to work. You know what I mean? Like you can hit a, a, a different object or, you know, um, I know I've been clotheslined by a tree out gathering cattle before. You know what I mean? It was like yes. all of a sudden I looked up and it was like, bam, you know what I mean? And thankfully I had my helmet on because it my helmet took the brunt of that front of that branch, but I still flew off the back because I was at a lope and it was just, you know, it happened so quick. So, um, so yeah, so really, you know, it doesn't really matter your experience level or how broke your horse is, you know, the best of riders. I mean, look at Courtney King Dye. I mean, she was an Olympic level Grand Prix dressage rider, you know, and she had a horse that just went down on her um, when she was schooling, you know what I mean? And she ended up with a significant brain injury. So it really, um, you know, it can happen to the best of riders, um, you know, ones that potentially know how to fall and how to react well and how to, um, you know, manage their horse. But, you know, there are a lot of things that happen out there. So I'll tell you, but, you're yeah. absolutely right, though. You know, people just make these assumptions. Oh, well, Western pleasure is slower. Therefore, I don't need my helmet versus jumping. And yeah, I don't know about mm -hmm. that. Right. I mean, even Glenn, yeah. what you do driving, yep. right? I also, wear my helmet especially. All the time. Well, you know absolutely. what? The other part you have with driving is the carriage running you over. So yes, you do you have that too. Cool. Very true. Yeah. So it's just yeah. like anything, right? We put a seatbelt on, so put a helmet on. And I know yep. even for CHA, you know, we talk all the time about, do we mandate them across the board? And we strongly recommend, highly recommend them. We mandate them for jumping, but strongly recommend, highly recommend for everything else. And our reason for that 
is until the Rainers and the Working Cow and all those folks, especially where I live, west of the Mississippi River and where you live, Jenny, west of the Mississippi River, um, we have a tendency to still have that, oh, it's got to be a Western hat to be part of the look, right? So that's fine. But, you know, mm-hmm. things are changing. And I just think that statistics mm-hmm. like that, that which riders are at the risk for head injuries the most, all of us. I think that yep. that's really just a very good question to kind of ask ourselves. So thank you. So Jenny, how do people find you and find Troxel to find out more? Sure. Yeah. So they can go to www.troxelhelmets.com. We have a lot of really good resources on there, a lot of really good information. There's, you know, more statistics, more information about, you know, helmet testing, how helmets work. We have some quick fit tip videos. We have videos on all of our products. So there's just a lot of really good information on there besides just our actual product line. So, um, yeah. And then we also have a great Facebook and Instagram um, page. And we, we share a lot of really good tidbits and nuggets and videos and people's stories. You know what I mean? Testimonies are really powerful. And, you know, it's really inspiring. Um, almost every day we get some type of a testimonial at Troxel, um, you know, basically, you know, thanking us for saving their life or their child's life. And it's really inspiring to know that we're, we're making a difference and we're helping people, you know, to enjoy their, their sport of riding that much more and, and to do it safer. So. Well, Jenny, just know that here at Certified Horsemanship Association, we really appreciate you and having you on board this year and hopefully many future years as a sponsor. And thank you for everything that you do for our members and for the horse industry as a whole. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. No, we're we're really proud to be a part and partner with you guys. And um, I think it's a really great thing you guys do to educate people. So, yeah, we just um, it's awesome to all work together as a team. You know, this is a pretty small industry at the end of the day. So pretty awesome. We all get to kind of support each other and what we all do. So I agree. Well, you have a wonderful month and uh, we'll chat again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Christy. Bye. All right. And your next guest is ready. Jennifer's got him on the ball today. Well, I'll tell you, whether you're a riding instructor or a horse trainer, and CHA sees those very differently, Um, horse trainer trains the horse, riding instructor trains the rider on hopefully a school horse that knows um, what to do and how to do it. So we're going to talk now, though, about horse training and wear a helmet while you're horse training. Okay. So Terry Williams is on next. Terry is a graduate of Audubon College with a bachelor's degree in equine science and stable management. She's a current clinic instructor with us for our standard Um, English Western program and also for our equine facility management program. She's also a site visitor and even a certified overnight guide. She has served as our region four director and is currently our treasurer. She spearheaded our research and development committee and served as editor in chief of the equine professional manual, the art of teaching writing. And for those out there that are teaching writing and don't have that book, it'll be very helpful to you and you can find it on our website. Um, That actually did earn an American Horse Publications Equine Media Award, so we're pretty proud of that. Terry's also been our 2011 CHA Certification Instructor of the Year and our 2015 Volunteer of the Year. She has managed many competitive equestrian programs and year-round camps, boarding facilities, and a large thoroughbred breeding and training facility. She's a judge of 4-H and open horse shows and currently a registered nurse working at a hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she lives in Blanchester. So, hi, Terry. How are you today? Good morning, Christy. I'm doing just fine. Okay, I so have to. Us. Well, I have to know before you get started. I have to know: is it harder dealing with people in the hospital or horse people? Which one of us are a bigger pain in the neck? 
That's a hard one. I always tell my patients that I left the horse industry and I just changed the type of clientele, and this clientele doesn't usually bite or kick. So <laughs> That's true. Easier, but actually, I know, actually my horse experience helps with the patients because you've learned to read the body language of horses, then you learn to read the body language of people, and that really comes in handy. I thought your answer was going to be horse people in the hospital are the biggest pain in the neck, because that is pretty much true. <laughs> yeah, that would be. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Christy, That sorry. would make good sense. <laughs> so, Terry, what's going on in Blanchester? Explain to people where exactly that is. Um, Blanchester is outside Wilmington, Ohio, and I've come to realize a lot of people don't know where Wilmington, Ohio but it is a um, the host site for the um, shoot. I can't think of the name of it. It's a big horse center um, called the World. The World Equestrian Center. Center. That's Amazing. correct. They're building one down here in Ocala too. Yep, you have the first one up there. Yes, yep. they are. Yes, yes, we have the first one up here. Um, so a lot of people don't realize that Ohio is a hotbed for horse showing. Um, so it's um, halfway between Dayton and Cincinnati. So I'm in a pretty rural area. Um, probably the town of Blanchester is probably like 3,500 people. I live outside of the town, um, so I live in a rural area that I don't have. Um, just to give you an idea, I don't have um, I don't have computer access other than my MiFi. So there's no hard lines here. That's okay. kind of nice. A little bit off grid. Nothing wrong with that. Off the grid. <laughs> I don't know. It can be frustrating. I would get the shakes. I would. I'd be in her hospital right there. I live there. She doesn't work in the psych ward, Glenn. <laughs> no, no, I don't work in the psych ward. <laughs> but sometimes well, you feel t- like it, honestly. Depending on the day, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, today we're going to talk about working through mounted issues. So before we get into the specifics of that topic, is there an overarching theme on this topic that you want to discuss? Yes. Um, Basically, on my business card, it says that I teach problem rider versus problem horse. That a lot of our problems with riders and horses isn't the horse. It's usually the rider, you know, in the combination. So what happens when a rider has a problem with the horse, they send it to the trainer. They might be there for one to two months. The problem's solved. Um, the trainer even has the rider ride the horse, problem solved, gets back at the um, rider's home, and they continue with their problem that they had, and the horse develops the problem again. So it's just a continuous cycle. So um, what I teach is basically if you fix the problem of the rider, you'll fix the problem of the horse. So that's my underlining thing. I think that's a great, great plan. So as we go through these really specific problems that some of our listeners might be having or might have in the future, I love that you're going to focus on the rider and how to fix it without the trainer because not all of us are trainers. And so we definitely need that support of knowing what to do once we get the horse back home. I love that. So what do you specifically like to do to help those riders whose horses like to drop their shoulders and dive into the middle of the arena? And I tell you, I got one of those. It's called the lesson horse, right? Let's go see the instructor in the center. I don't want to do this anymore on the rail. I, I think that dropping your shoulder, I mean, I find it one of the easiest ones to correct, you know, with the students that I've had. Um, basically, you have to develop that inside leg for one thing. 
Um, when we start teaching riders, we tend to ride with the outside rein and we forget about the inside leg to keep the horse on the rail. And also by riding the outside leg, you're, you know, predisposing him to drop in that shoulder. Um, so as an instructor, you know, of, of students that have shown, you always say, ride your corners, ride your corners. Well, a lot of people don't define what that is. So when the horse drops his shoulder, um, he's putting all his weight on his inside shoulder and actually he can come in, like you said which is another issue in itself, but we're just going to deal with dropping the shoulder first. Um, so usually if you watch the, watch the rider riding, um, look at the horses that drop their shoulders. A lot of times you'll see the rider drop their shoulder. So the rider is off weight too. So to fix the rider, first of all, you have them step into the outside stirrup a little more in the corners, make sure the inside leg is on the corner, and then to keep the horse from dropping the shoulder, you just lift that inside rein, and how I was taught was you think about lifting it towards your outside shoulder, which is an extreme visual. It's not quite that far. It's more like an indirect rein, and then you ride your corner. So you basically you're picking up his shoulder every time you come to the corner. Now, the other problem that you said is a separate problem to running into the center is because when we teach, we tend to bring the horses in the center when you're done. Um, so as an instructor, you should be stopping them different places, like even stop them on the rail at the end of the lesson, and then I'll quit having them come in. Or if you're teaching where you have part of the class on the inside, you know, sitting in the inside, that's just predisposing you to teach the horse to come in because they're a herd animal. They want to be with other horses. So when I teach, you know, group riding lessons, I don't usually have my horses in the center I have those horses on the rail, and I have the rider that I'm working with, you know, more individually riding on the inside. So you might have three to four horses, you know, on the rail, and then one person tracking on the inside to fix the problem. That'll keep them out on the rail, too. But basically, it's a lack of that inside leg is why they're diving in. Does that make sense? Any questions? No, I think it's really good. Um, And so... (laughs) Another one that I think happens a lot is that horses are inverted and hollowed back and might even have a fake headset. So if you want to define what all those things mean and then dive in on how to fix them, that'd be great. Okay. Well, a fake headset is basically, I mean, everybody knows someone that has a horse, um, especially when you're showing 4-H. A lot of people just like to take shortcuts to fix the horse. Um, so they think about the head needs to be dropped and needs to break at the pull, and that's the headset you want. But um, basically, the headset comes from driving the back end under. But as people taking shortcuts, you put tie downs on, you put draw reins on, and you're forcing the head the head of the horse down, and he's hollowing out his back, and he's really not breaking at the pole, at least not very willingly. So I was always taught get the back end under him, and the head will come. So it takes time. Um, if the back end's not under him, then he's got the hollow back, the stiff, really not giving to the back fit, that's what I call the fake headset. And they're just not moving as naturally as you want them to move. Um, so an exercise to work on to get that back end under is backing. And I like to, um, use a phrase that I was taught and I don't know, I'm just going to go ahead and mention the name that one of the gentlemen that I worked for in camping when I worked in camping was Jim Glunt. And he said, backing is a forward motion. And most people are like, what are you talking about? When either, you know, in order to go backwards, you have to go forward. So you set your hands, you ask the horse to go forward with your leg. He hits the bit, the pressure of the bit, because you're holding the bit and then he backs, um, as opposed to people dragging their horse back. So that's the first place to start working on your headset is backing. Does that make sense? Or I love that. Simple, yes. It takes a lot of work to get the horse underneath them. I mean, so 
that that's the first thing, and that's that's not cheating. And once you get the horse backing correctly, his headset's going to be there. It's going to be there because you've learned to drive the horse up into the bit. Well, and if you think about it, if you back correct, you can also do that a turn on the haunch correctly, right? Which eventually becomes a pivot, which eventually becomes a turn back, which eventually becomes a roll. Correct. That would be another thing to get him back, back right? It's back very in. progressive. Yeah, you really want him working off his back end for any exercise that works on his back end. But the backing will work on, you know, getting his back in under plus developing that headset. As long as you're not dragging back. I mean, you watch people in the show ring, the ones that back, um, they basically a lot of them dragging their horse backwards. And that's not, the horse has not been allowed to get his back in underneath them and round up his back. And so that's, that's a big issue. So if you teach him the back properly, that's the first step. But like and the other things, turn on the horns and the rollbacks, it's going to be important to develop in it. Well, I'm and so glad that you mentioned Jim Glenn. He's actually our Pennsylvania state rep, and he has been with CHA and a part of CHA for a really long time. So I think that's wonderful that he was one of your mentors. Um, he's very good. And for those of you that follow us on social media, I'll tell you, Jim Glunt is everywhere, answering all the questions and doing everything for people that ask. So, yeah, he's He's wonderful. Okay, so let's dive into the next question. What do you do with those riders that are having trouble with their horses being too forward, rushing, or, well, let's just admit it, downright running away? What do you do with those guys? Okay, this is one of my favorite topics, I guess I would say, because I've had, I've had a lot of success with this topic, and I'll kind of go into that a little bit. Um, basically, when a horse runs away, I mean, usually it's the first, the first time they run away, it's because of the fear, you know, that we know that that's an instinct is to either, you know, flight or fight. And so they run away and then it becomes a learned behavior because what's the first thing you do when your horse bolts, you grab the reins. Okay. Correct. A lot of times if your horse is running away with you, you just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and there's no reward and the horse is being punished. You know, he's already afraid. He doesn't know what's going on. So what I teach is when a horse is actually running away with you, and this is a hard thing to, you know, to comprehend, you have to give in order to receive. So you have to give a little bit of release. He responds, you know, then, then you've rewarded him, and then you pull a little, you know, just a give and take. Um, so you have to get, like I said, you have to give in order to receive. So usually when you give, you release that pressure that he's feeling. He's like, what's going on? And then you'll probably slow down. Um, one of the other issues with horses that run away, a lot of times when you're riding, it's not because they're because they're afraid. It becomes a game. Um, basically, you don't have the horse's attention on you. And I teach the riders that one of you has to be in charge, and it better be you. So you need to constantly ask the horse, not not pester him because that's just the opposite, but ask him. You know, like if you're riding along, maybe you want him you know, to bend a little bit, or you might squeeze and release your leg, just wiggle your fingers a little bit just to get his attention on you and keep his attention on you. Um, and I have a good example of this. Um, several years ago, I was taking a first aid class, and that was actually for CHA that I was taking the first aid class, and there was a young girl in the class, and you had to introduce why you were there. And at that point, I was there because CHA said I had to have this first aid class. And um, this girl in the class, um, she was there because she was a lifeguard. And she said, well, do you teach, you train horses? And I said, I train horses. And she started to say that she had a horse that ran away. And I said, well, I would prefer to teach you on the horse and fix the problem that way. And we started working with her. 
And within the first year, she was doing um, rollbacks and Western riding. And even when she'd practice her rollbacks, there's times where you had to walk away from it because the horse would st- you know, start to get too excited and not listen. So then you had to go to something else. Um, but at the beginning, she was so afraid of that horse running away that for, for like two, two years before I taught her, she had several people trying to help her. And nobody could solve the problem of the horse running away. And this was a kid that wanted you know, to show this horse in 4-H. And basically had a teacher that she had to trust him and get over that fear. And that's the hardest thing is to get over the fear. And I know there's a lot of people that specialize in dealing with fear. So everybody addresses their fear at at their own speed. And that's something that you have to be aware of as an instructor. But basically it was a matter of of the reward, you know, that basically have to give in order to receive that helped this horse turn around. And within two years, that horse, well, the first year it was funny because it was a buckskin and I had a buckskin. So the first year after I taught the horse, people were like, oh, she's riding Terry's horse now because he was so much better. The second year, she won a dressage class. I mean, so that shows you, I see awesome. you know, dressage is the epitome of putting everything together. And that shows you that he had that, you know, release. So it takes time. And the other thing with this horse, you know, I kept telling them and they'd laugh. I say, he has ADHD. He's constantly not paying attention. And that's why you had to keep your attention, you know, his attention focused on you. But he became very talented. I mean, he won the rest. He got second in the Western riding class. So, you know, so we could do speed events, but I see Western riding. And even when she was doing rollbacks, it's more speed. You get more excited. And you just had to know when to calm them down. So that's, that's my thing with the runaways. I really think that it's a top behavior, too. I mean, but first of all, probably the first time it came from the fear in the horse. Questions? No, I would agree with that. I think you're absolutely right. We had um, an off-the-track thoroughbred when I was growing up that uh, an older lady had bought as her first horse, and it wanted to do the same thing, just rush and rush and rush. So we got into this big open riding arena, and we just... I got on him. I was, you know, young and I just went into two point position and just let him go. And when he realized, oh, I'm just going to keep going. Oh, no one's going to pull on my face. Oh, this is not. a. Oh, this is all OK now. And we kind of got him over it that way. So many different ways to do different things. But I think your idea here and your example is so good. And I'm so glad that there was so much success for her. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was, it, I mean, our county's big that we were in. We were actually over in Lebanon and Warren County would have 200 horse entries in their fair. So, I mean, competition was stiff. You had people from the quarter horse circuit, you know, in the paint horse circuit and other circuits. So it was really stiff competition. And, you know, that was her dream was just to do something better with him, but she never gave up on that horse. And to this day, you know, she's out trail riding that horse with no problem. Well, and sticking with that theme of, you know, horse showing and things, obviously it's important to have two leads at the canter or the lope, even if you trail ride or don't horse show, but it's really important if you horse show. So what do you do, Terry, for riders who find their horses only have one lead at the canter or the lope instead of two? Um, a lot of times it starts out with that. That can be a rider problem too. I mean, it could also be a horse issue. Um, sometimes horses are stiffer one direction than the other. So you have to work on bending and counterbending to help make them more flexible. Um, every horse should be able to move his hips and his shoulders as you ask. Um, so basically, one thing to keep in mind that a lot of a lot of people out there, other than riding instructors, most riding instructors understand the concept is the lead comes from the hind end. And as a horse judge, when you're judging big classes, 
You know, if that horse wasn't set up right, if he didn't move his hind end over, I knew he was going to miss his lead before they took that first step. And that would help me, you know, spin around and catch the rest of them that missed your lead. Because you missed your lead, that's about 20 points off when you're thinking about it, and you're not going to place in that class. And as a judge, that helps you knock down the class. Now, as an instructor, you know, and my daughter, she really had a hard time with this. I mean, so her riding instructor had to work on her, too, you know, to get the horse to listen and to wait. So basically, you ask the horse to move his hips to the, to the inside with your outside leg, and when he gives to that and responds and moves his hips over, that's when you ask him to go forward with your outside seat. And have your, you still have your outside leg behind the girth. You can ask for a little bit more leg, and your inside leg is at the girth to keep him on the rail. And basically, he will begin to learn to pick up that lead correctly. But once again, he has to be bending first, so you have to do the groundwork before you start asking. But once he's able to move his hip over, he's usually going to get that lead. And I had I have another example that's kind of funny. My daughter used to laugh at me that um, she showed 4-H from the time she was 8 years old. And whenever you're in the warm-up ring, there's a lot of kids that don't have, you know, instructors that their parents have been helping teach them, and they have problems in the warm-up ring. And I would constantly help people, even though they were my daughter's competition. That's what my daughter would think it was funny. Actually, I mean, she wasn't upset because, you know, she learned to ride for herself, not for the competition. Um, so I would help people. And one time there was this girl at this big show that was at the World Equestrian Center when it used to be called Roberts. And the girl kept missing her lead, the one lead in the warm-up arena. And her mom was totally frustrated. And... Um, basically I just said, Hey, you know, I can help you. This is what my daughter learned. Did not tell her I was a riding instructor. Just said, I can help you. You know, this is how my daughter has the same problem. And I taught her to move that horse's hip over. And within, you know, 10 minutes, she was getting her lead within 80% of the time. So just within 10 minutes, you know, she could do that. Now, the funny part was, she's like, I've been taking lessons, you know, for two years, twice a week. And her instructor had her jumping and she said, well, don't worry about the lead. We're just not going to worry about the lead. And right there, I mean, the kids going to the horse show, she's not going to place if she misses that lead. And so, I mean, basically with teaching her that and having the patience and her horse was already, you know, he was bending and everything. It was just a matter. It was pilot error is what I call it. So just encouraging her. And, you know, she did well at that show. So. So took my business card and been an instructor, but I'm, I've never been in it for the money. I've been in it for the joy of teaching, if that makes sense. Probably yes. why I'm a nurse, because I needed to make money. <laughs> <laughs> but you still do a lot of teaching on the side as a traveling trainer. I so I do. I do, because yeah. I enjoy. I enjoy it so much. Yes. So people that might be near you there in Ohio and want to find you, is the best way on chainstructors.com and look up Terry Williams, or is there another way you'd like to share as well? No, that's the best way is to look up Terry Williams and it's T-E-R-R-Y and um, look it up on CHA.com and you can get a hold of me and I'll be happy to come to your place and work with you and your horse. Well, Terry, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you. Well, thank you. I really enjoy being part of CHA. I just think it's a really important um, organization to keep riders safe. And I think that's the first thing with horses. And you've been a part of us for a long time, and we appreciate you. So have a good rest of your month of May, and happy Memorial Day weekend. Oh, you too. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. Bye.
All right. Well, we're going to take a quick song break here, and then we're going to come back, uh, and we're going to talk to another guest. Tell us who that's going to be. That is going to be Teddy Frankie, and he is going to give us more information on this topic of mounted issues with horses. All right. Sounds good. Well, we're going to do Above the Timberline by Jared Rogerson. We'll be right back. city offers you convenience And this old mountain offers you no lenience But it's the life I choose to lead Peace of mind's what I receive I make my home Above the timberline In my saddlebags Who knows what you'll find On my trusty steed I've got everything I need Up here on the great divide I went to college Searching for my way Textbooks for rodeos seem a pretty even trade. Well, I guess fate can handle each and every day. Wouldn't have it any other way. Now I make my home above the timberline in my saddlebags. Who knows what you'll find On my trusty steed I've got everything I need Up here on the great divide There's bighorn sheep Look, there's an eagle flying down there Got fish to eat And up here there ain't no bears It's the place that I reside Up above the timberline Fate's in charge of every day Wouldn't have it any other way. Well, that's Jared Rogerson, and it's called Above the Timberline, which for some reason when I think of Christy, I think right out there across that across that valley is the Timberline. So I think of you every time. So excited to introduce our next guest, Teddy. Teddy Frankie is a horse trainer, riding instructor, and farrier from North Central Oregon, where he manages a camp horse program. He started with CHA as a student more than 25 years ago, and he is now a master instructor and assistant clinic instructor and holds certification in our Instructors for Riders with Disabilities, equine facility management, and a site visitor. He just recently became an equine facility manager, ACI, and also pack and trail. Yay! It just happened, and we'll talk more about that. Teddy has helped to lead horse programs in three states, 
been a CHA regional director in two regions and served on the board for the American Youth Horse Council. He operates a successful equine business and currently sits on our board of directors. Hi, Teddy. How are you doing? Hey, Christy, Glenn. It's great to be with you guys today. We are so excited to have you, and please do share. Yes, no problem. Please do share your experience with that certification out on the trail you just did. I was telling Glenn about your drone and about the video you created. Can you tell us a little bit more about that certification that just happened? Yeah, absolutely. I think, to my knowledge, this is the only pack and trail certification that's uh, taking place in the U.S. through CHA now, but we're really hoping to kind of get that going. It's historically been a really vibrant program for CHA, and uh, it's all about uh, taking horses into the backcountry, uh, taking guests into the backcountry, and just kind of sharing some of those experiences with people. And during the certification, uh, it's there's kind of two criteria that we're looking at. Um, so one is to certify as a packer, and then the other is to certify as a pack instructor. Now, there's all different levels of that. So you may come in just as somebody who's just wanting to lead a, a real simple trail ride all the way up to somebody who's going to take an excursion into the backcountry with guests for a, a season. Well, I'll tell you all the mules and then go ahead and let everybody know one of the surprises that you had for a meal while you were out on the trail. Oh, yeah, they'll have to watch the video, and it is on YouTube, and I'll, I'll share that with you guys a little bit later so folks can look at it. But, uh, yeah, we had a rattlesnake come creeping into our camp in the middle of the night, so we, uh, or not even in the middle of the night, actually. It was just as we were kind of putting horses up for the night. And so we decided to uh, include him, uh, invite him, I should say, to, to dinner, uh, and he came and visit, or came in, uh, in the fry pan. So he, uh, he did attend dinner with us <laughs> and was quite delicious, I would add. <laughs> that cracks me up. Does he taste like chicken? Well, you know, he, somebody said they're like uh, they're like chicken with fish bones, and I was like, you know, that's probably a pretty good way to describe them. Okay, I'm just that's saying ooh all the way around. So, uh, just... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's not. Got to see the video in order to <laughs> get more. <laughs> yeah not for everyone for sure but you know it's uh things like that that create memories right and that's what we're all about <laughs> that's right so going ahead teddy and getting to the topic for our show today what do you tell riders and we'll jump into some really specific now on these mounted issues how about those horses that are really lazy what do you tell riders about motivating those guys absolutely you know and sometimes people are really blessed to have a lazy horse as they're um, you know, as they're learning and kind of uh, developing their skill level, a lazy horse can, can be kind of a blessing. But obviously, the hallmark of a good horse is they can be asleep one minute and alive and, and awake and doing something that you ask them to do a split second later. And so that's something that we're constantly looking for. And one of the keys, I think, to developing a lazy horse to where they're able to respond is you need to make sure that your aids always mean something. All right. Your aids always have to mean something. So a lot of times people will apply an aid to a horse. And when I say aids, I'm talking about natural and artificial aids. So our four natural aids are our hands, our legs, our voice, and our weight. Um, and then artificial aids would be something like spurs or crops, something to, 
to that effect. And uh, anytime we use any of those aids, it's really critical that they mean something. So if you're, if you're, aid, for example, to get your horse to go is to squeeze your legs. You don't want to be on your horse squeezing your legs and then not really following through and enforcing that aid. So uh, that can be a big piece just to getting a, a lazy horse to move is they understand that every time you do this, it means they do indeed have to go. Every time you squeeze, every time you check on the reins, it means they do indeed have to stop. And there's follow through there. You've, you've set a line and you've enforced that line. And that can be on the ground as well. They oftentimes a horse will push through you if they don't respect your space. And, uh, you know, your space, just your presence needs to mean something to that horse. Then another, another issue that I think, um, comes up is people tend to, I, I call it nagging because it's what I do to my, my children when, uh, when they don't respond, you know, for example, if I ask my, my daughter to, to clean a room and then I asked her again and I asked her again and I asked her again. Suddenly my, my words don't mean anything, right? Because I've, I've asked her so many times. It's just meaningless. I've never, never actually enforced it. And so that kind of goes back to the first one too. Uh, don't nag, make sure your, your aids mean something. Then also a tool that I like to use in, in my training program that is really helpful in getting a horse to um, I guess to pay attention and be ready is to isolate each individual aid. So we talked about our four natural aids, our hands, our legs, our voice, and our weight. And I like to isolate each aid and use it by itself. So for example, I might just use my legs to get my horse to go. And then I might just try and use my weight by, uh, you know, rocking my seat or adding some energy to my, my, uh, my seat and try and get my horse to respond to just that one aid. And then when I put them all together and use them in conjunction, then it means it creates a whole lot bigger and uh, more complete picture in the horse's mind as to what I want. And so that's, that's another little tool that a person could incorporate into their uh, training program that just really would help, help uh, the horse develop that ability to fall asleep one minute and then immediately wake up as the rider signals. I love that you talk about the natural aids because I think, Teddy, a lot of people go straight from, well, this horse is lazy. We're just going to use a crop on it or we're going to use a spur on it. And that's not necessarily the right answer, right? Getting to make sure that he's listening to your aids correctly is probably a better way to go. Well, and it's real easy to get heavier and heavier and heavier or more driving with your aids when really the horse, you know, we talk about how a horse can feel a fly land on their back, right? So even, even a lazy horse can feel a fly and, and would respond in kind, whether it's switching their tail or doing whatever they do to get that fly off. So that tells you that even a lazy horse can be dialed into where they're, they're sensitive and, and willing to respond uh, getting a heavier aid is not really the correct answer. Um, it's making sure that your aids are meaningful when you do give them. And part of that key too is giving a release at the appropriate time. And I think if there's one thing that I see these new riders struggle with more than anything else, it's the timing of when do I give the aid and when do I release the aid? And the horse is going to hunt that release. They're going to look for that release. And if they don't think they can get the release, then uh, some types of horses will just get stoic and they will appear to be lazy when really they're just putting up with you. 
That makes complete sense. So now let's go ahead and go to a different issue. How about those horses that shy or spook while they're in the arena or while they're out on the trail? What are some solution steps to help with that? Well, to be honest, I feel like horses that shy and spook are generally easier tra- from a training perspective to work with because you have motion, you have movement. And then it's really all about just kind of controlling that movement. And, you know, initially with young horses, I don't even really try to control the spook as much as I just try to let them experience life. And I just try to be a backpack on them. So as I'm, as I'm riding around, I'm looking for things that are uh, possibly going to spook my horse or possibly going to um, cause issues for them. And I don't necessarily take a direct approach. Say it's a tarp on the ground or, uh, you know, or you're crossing a creek or, you know, there's birds that fly up or something like that. I don't necessarily take a direct approach with a young horse right off the bat. Uh, more than anything, I just try and ride past whatever it is. And then little by little, uh, I'm going to take a little more direct approach uh, but not one where I would have to really hammer on the horse to get them uh, through it. Now, that being said, there will be a time where uh, you have a lesson in, in obedience and your horse is going to test you. And I find that most horses do that once or twice where they test your resolve. Are you really going to make me do this thing? And then they develop an attitude of obedience. Like if I obey uh, this rider, um, there's, there's good things that happen. I get a release. I get to relax. I get to catch my breath, whatever you choose to make your release. So, um, the other part is, is really trying to, to take small steps. So if you've got a horse that, you know, every time I get them near, say a a pink jacket or whatever it is, that's on the fence. If I just try and, and break steps down so that I get my horse into the arena with the, the pink jacket. And then a little bit later, I try and get them on the same side, you know, let's say it's hanging on a fence post. Then I try and get them on the same side of the arena. And I just start riding laps in that arena. And of course the horse is going to shy away around that, uh, that pink jacket. Little by little, I can get them a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. And if you take that uh, approach and kind of play the long game with them, um, pretty soon, I mean, they're, they're not a horse that, that comes out in the morning is, uh, generally they're, if they're speaking, it's because they're concerned about their own safety, but little by little, as they, uh, as they start to build some trust and some confidence in you, uh, they will actually start to, to develop confidence in the spooky things too. Then another little trick that I use sometimes is actually getting them to move, uh, whatever it is they're scared of. And so that may sound kind of strange to, to some folks, but, uh, the way I got onto this is actually working cattle out here in Oregon. When, um, you'd have a horse, you know, people talk about their horses being, uh, getting used to cattle or, um, being exposed to cattle is a, is a word that I hear a lot. And, you know, I, I started a whole lot of colts and it's really seldom that I have to, to do much. um, by way of getting a horse used to cattle. Mostly I go out with a group of, of men and we, we ride out and uh, mostly men, I should say, and we ride out and, and move a, a group of cattle. And I just bring that horse along for the ride and put them right in with the rest of the horses. And little by little, they're doing whatever it is, uh, you know, that we were setting out to do. But as they move those cows, they build confidence. They learn that I can push this cow. And so I reverse engineered that a little bit and took it into the arena and found that if I had a horse that was spooky about a, 
about a, a big exercise ball. Well, if I just rolled that ball along in front of me as I led that horse, little by little, they would start to understand that they could move that ball and they would develop confidence in that. So horses are really aware of things coming towards them, but they're also aware of things moving away towards them. And they, they kind of enjoy that idea of moving something off of them. It's like the same way they would maybe move a buddy around in a herd that they were a little more, uh, a little higher on the pecking order over. Uh, that's something that they, they seem to enjoy. And it's a great way to build confidence in a horse that may speak. That may have been a bit of a long answer, but uh, I think, I hope, hope that uh, some of your listeners kind of get the gist of what we're, we're after in that. I think that's a really great idea. When we first moved to um, Colorado, we have a lot of mountain bikes that we share the trails with. And I had a horse that did not like those very much. So I had my husband get on his mountain bike and we chased him. And pretty soon my horse was like, this is super fun chasing John on the mountain bike. I like this. And guess who wasn't afraid of mountain bikes anymore? So I think that's a great idea that you just mentioned. Absolutely. You tap into kind of their natural desires a little bit that way. Really works well. So now I think a misconception that happens a lot is what a buck is versus what a kick out to the leg is when, let's say, you're asking the horse to pick up canner and he doesn't want to. So let's go ahead and start with horses that truly buck. If you could define buck and what that means and how you would solve that. Yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of people kind of do confuse like what we would call a crow hop or kicking out or something like that versus a horse that, that bogs their head and is sucking air and, um, you know, and is actually bucking. And so, you know, one of the thing, one of the hallmarks I would say of a horse that's bucking is they, they tend to be more in a flight mode. They're, they're not really thinking self-preservation kind of goes away somewhere in there and they're just trying to rid themselves of whatever is causing them to buck. It may be something on their back or, uh, you know, something that, is is spooking them versus a horse that's kicking out. So if you turned a group of horses loose uh, for the first time in a new field, oftentimes you'll see as they're running across the field, they'll be kicking their feet out. Uh, and sometimes it's just a way that they kind of express that they're, they're feeling good and they're enjoying themselves. Uh, or it could be because of an irritation or something like that, but they're doing it in stride and they're generally not um, going into flight mode. They're just, uh, they're just, kicking their feet out for whatever reason it may be. So I would, I would say that's probably a, a big distinctive is whether they're going into flight mode or whether they're, uh, they're kind of thinking through and processing as they're doing things or just, just feeling good. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. So if somebody actually does have a horse, then that bucks, what is the biggest thing that you tell them to keep the horse from doing it again? Well, um, this is, this is probably a pretty big topic because there's a lot of reasons that a horse could buck. And I would say that the first thing that I would tell people, um, without really knowing their situation is it's really important that you know, when you're in over your head, um, horses that buck can be really dangerous for, um, just for people who aren't, aren't really experienced or who don't ride bucking horses. And fortunately, there's a whole world of people out there who, um, who handle that kind of situation. And one of the keys is really being able to identify what's causing the buck. Why are they doing it? And again, there's a whole host of reasons that a horse 
could buck it. Could be something that's tactile that they feel that they don't like. Maybe a saddle fit issue, or maybe uh, you know, maybe you've got something under your pad. Uh, it could be inexperience. It could be something that scared them. Um, you know, there's just there's just a whole range of things there. And so, uh, I I always encourage people if they are not already comfortable riding uh, a horse that bucks, then at least get an instructor to come alongside you and kind of watch what's going on. Um, especially if it's a horse that is, uh, a little bit unpredictable in the nature of how they buck. If it's, uh, if it's something that every time I put this saddle on this horse, uh, and put them in this pen, then they buck, then you've kind of got a, uh, you can, you can expect it to come. And so you can work through it from that point. But if it's unexpected and it's at random, or at least appears to be at random to you, uh, then, then I would certainly recommend, and we all want to, we all want to get on the horse and take care of the problem, right? Everybody wants to do that, but, uh, it's, it's certainly not worth an injury to you or to your horse to, um, to try and take that on when you're not prepared for that. Another thing that I would say with a horse that bucks is when you, if you can isolate the reason, the cause then breaking the steps down that lead to that bucking uh, is really a good way to kind of start to work through it. So I have a couple of rules. If I know why a horse bucks um, and it's, it's not something that they should be bucking for, in other words, if they had a burr under their saddle, uh, you know, or a bee sting or something like that, then to me, those are acceptable reasons. And those as a, as a rider slash owner slash trainer, my role is to take care of those things for the horse. That's my job. But uh, if it's if it's something that like, oh, they just don't want to wear a saddle, well, um, you know, that's something that they're going to have to learn to persevere through and, uh, and something that is part of their job description is to wear a saddle. So uh, bucking is not going to be acceptable in that case. And so I'm going to try and set up a scenario where the horse cannot get hurt I cannot get hurt and the horse can't get away from whatever is offending them. As, and again, I want to clarify, assuming that whatever is offending them is something that I want them to learn to deal with. And uh, so if you kind of have those rules in mind, it can help you. And again, there's, there's infinite scenarios here. So it's really tough for me to dial in on a specific scenario. But um, if you have those rules in place, then you can kind of manufacture your own uh, way to go about dealing with this and breaking it down into tiny steps is really helpful. Say your horse wants to buck every time they do an upward transition. Well, what if you worked on just ex say, say it was going from trot to canter because that happens sometimes. Uh, what if you just worked on that upward transition and just went to the extended trot for a while and then circled out and then maybe you get one stride of canter and before they even have a chance to really throw their head down, and, and give you trouble, you circle out. And then little by little, you keep adding strides. Or maybe you go out on a road where it's going to be fun and enjoyable for them to canter, and it's a little bit uphill. And the reason I say uphill is because riders tend to lurch forward when the horse bucks, and so that can help you stay back where you need to be. And you just let the horse roll into a canter of their own choosing, and then it's an enjoyable process for them. So again, I don't want to drill down into a, a whole bunch of different scenarios. I want to kind of give some guidelines, and I guess that's probably what I think would work good for for folks is to um, to break things down, 
uh, understand the cause, know when you're over your head, and uh, and then try and do the little steps that'll help you get uh, get past some of that. Teddy, I think that that is an overarching, really good idea. So in closing here, before we let people know how to find you, is there any other particular mounted issue that brings up a specific example or anything that you would like to share with us today? Does this mean I get to get on a soapbox? <laughs> well, for, uh, for two minutes, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. The truth, truth is, is I think probably the way that a lot of people err and, and cause some of these issues in horses, they don't give the horse the liberty that they need, um, to do what they're asking them. So for example, uh, the, the real consistent one that I see across the horse industry, whether it's Western riders, English riders, um, and, and really in amongst all the disciplines, I see this all the time is, is constant bit pressure. People don't allow their horse to have their head in their neck. And especially on a young horse, their head and their neck is really their source of balance. If you look at how a horse is built, they've got that big old neck and head that's cantilevered out over their front quarters. And it is the, the same kind of way we use our hands for balance as we're, uh, you know, as we're doing different things. A horse will use their head and neck. And so when we take a lot of bit pressure and put it on the horse, uh, especially as they're developing their athleticism, it's really detrimental to their, to their mind. They don't feel like they have their balance. It's like if, if you were to duct tape your hands to your sides and then uh, get asked to walk, walk a balance beam. It would make you uptight. It would make you uncomfortable. You wouldn't be able to catch yourself if you fell. And so a lot of times horses are acting out because they don't have the freedom to be able to protect themselves. And so if you, if you give them that ability, if you give them their head to negotiate an obstacle or even just to cruise around the arena, then little by little, as they develop athletic ability, they start to give back to you more of that frame that you're looking for and more of that, uh, you know, dare I use the word collection that, that comes with time. But it's really something that they have to give to you. It's not something that you can take from them. So there's, there's my little, little soapbox. And I think if, uh, if we think through that a little bit, we can offer the horse a lot better deal and, uh, and get a lot more out of them by really by doing less. Teddy, I absolutely love that example of duct taping our hands and walking on a balance beam because, yeah, no, thank you. I don't want to walk on a balance beam, period, let alone with my hands duct taped, right? So that's a really good analogy to kind of understand when we get in our horse's way how it can make the horse feel. So how do people in Oregon and some of our other listeners um, find you? I know you're obviously on CHAinstructors.com, but are there other ways that you would like them to hunt you down? Yeah, you bet. There's lots of ways to uh, to connect. So um, my personal website for my business is frankieequine.com. And uh, then we also have this YouTube channel that me and, and a friend, uh, Scott DePaulo, started. And Scott's another CHA instructor and PAC clinician. And uh, so our YouTube channel is called Live Equestrian. So if you get onto YouTube, you can just type in Live Equestrian. It should come up. The uh, the pack clinic video with the infamous rattlesnake eating is on there. And, uh, so folks can check that out. And then also campmorrow.org is the organization that, that I work for. 
and it is a summer camp for kids. It is a horse, uh, the ranch side of it, I should say, is a horse-specific camp where kids can come for a week at a time, and we do a lot of first-time rides. We teach kids from the ground up and uh, give them an awesome first experience on horseback. Awesome, Teddy. Well, it was so good to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, there you go. We got it through, and uh, the, the connection held up, so that's good. Uh, we can, you, As I mentioned earlier in the show, you can find all of the past episodes, all of the Training Tuesdays with the CHA. You can go to horsesinthemorning.com, scroll down to the middle of the page, click on the CHA banner, and it'll bring up all the past episodes for probably five or six years' worth. So it'll take you a while to get caught up on those. And we have to let you go, Christy, because you have a conference to get ready for. I do, but it was a pleasure to be on today and so much fun well, to do I'm it just live glad here that you in our made office it. in Kentucky. <laughs> just glad that you made it. I I'm know, glad that too. you got there, and I hope you have a room that doesn't have a pull-out bed tonight. That's the plan. That you can actually get some sleep, maybe a little nap in today. <laughs> well, that all sounds good. <laughs> I'm anxious to see you next month. I think we're actually going to be seeing you before we do our show. I'm not sure. I have to look at the schedule, but uh, it's going to be right around that time. And uh, we'll get a complete report then on how this brand new conference went. Sounds good, Glenn. You have a good one. What's the website again for you for you guys? It is CHA.horse, or to find an instructor or equine facility manager near you, it's CHAinstructors.com. That's it. We'll see you all tomorrow.